So now, ladies and gentlemen, it is start time. Are you ready for start time? You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week it's a music film double feature. We're talking with the Oscar-nominated actor Paul Racy about his movie Sound of Metal and his involvement in the deaf community. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Kant. Later in the show, we'll talk to the director of a documentary about Guy Clark, Towns Van Zandt, and Susanna Clark, and their unconventional relationship. I can just get off of this L.A. freeway without getting killed a cop. But first, Paul Racy. Greg, Sound of Metal was released last year, and it quickly got a lot of people talking. It's one of the most gripping movies about music I've, I've ever seen. One of the best about a drummer, too. It stars Riz Ahmed as Ruben, a drummer in a two-piece metal band, noise rock combo, who suddenly becomes deaf and is left terrified and depressed, adrift without that music that fueled him. The film is nominated for six Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Sound, Best Actor, and Best Supporting Actor for our guest today, Paul Racy. He's a longtime musician and actor who, in the film, plays the director of a sober house for the deaf. While Racy can hear, American Sign Language is his first language, as both his parents were deaf. Throughout his career, he's been a continuous advocate for deaf representation in the arts. Paul's performance in Sound of Metal is amazing. Paul, congratulations on all the attention this movie is getting. It's well-deserved, and it's amazing how good this movie is. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. We are eager to talk to you for a couple of reasons. Uh, Number one, we're Chicago guys. Of course, this is a national show, but you have deep, deep roots in Chicago theater. But, But number two, your activism and your understanding of the deaf community right, and American Sign Language, but also being a music guy. It's a fascinating story I've seen you uh, mention in several interviews. Uh, Your dad was born deaf. Your mom lost her hearing. And you recommended a line uh, uh, to Sound of Metal because the character you play as Vietnam vet loses his hearing because of an explosion, a bomb. He will never forget the music he was listening to when the bomb went off. And your mom actually said that. She will never forget what she was listening to when she lost her hearing. Yes. So my, my dad lost his hearing at about six months old from spinal meningitis. So he just never heard, doesn't remember hearing, but my mom did. So there's a big difference between uh, the two of them together, you know. Mm-hmm. When did you learn sign language? Obviously you had to do that to communicate, but how, how soon was that in your life? Well, sign language is my, my native tongue so to speak. That's the first thing you learn. All codas, children of deaf adults, that's the first thing you learn to survive. You know, milk, food, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. <laughs> Feed me. Mm-hmm. But that's your first language. And then I learned uh, English as a second language after. Hmm. And that's where I, you know, listening to records and uh, Jack Brickhouse and Howard Miller on the radio. I had a radio. I had uh, records. I had my my WLS, and there was constantly music going on uh, that I would just sit there and listen to. And my mom uh, really enjoyed watching me listening to the music and kind of like singing to it. And so then I would sign the songs to her. Ah. I did a whole show for my mom just in sign language, singing it and signing it. 
we bonded over that. Yeah. My mom and I. It was great. So I, I had I had, you know, talky talky all the time in my ears. So uh but but ASL is my first language. Doesn't matter what you write, how you write, whether it's spelled correctly, or if it's just a big mess. I don't care. No one will read it, okay? But I want you to keep writing continuously without stopping until you feel like you can sit again. What was your interpretation of how, how deaf people were portrayed in, 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 in Hollywood movies up to this point? Well, the portrayal has been mostly inaccurate since Jane Wyman in 1948 when she won the Academy Award for uh, Johnny Belinda. Mm-hmm. And since that time, there have been portrayals and deaf people are not happy about, about the casting of hearing actors playing culturally deaf people. It just, it doesn't work. And so they're upset and they're upset even up until this day. They want to see more authenticity on the screen, just as every other disenfranchised community does. Wheelchair people. I mean, sure. the, the the screen that we're looking at, with all these white guys running around, uh, uh, for the most part, is not the way. I, that's not the world that I live in. So uh, Hollywood has to do better. I think they're getting the message now, and uh, there are deaf organizations that are up in arms about it, and they always have been, and they're trying to make breakthroughs here. And hopefully, I think Sound of Metal is starting that conversation about having some more. Uh, more authentic portrayals of not only deaf people, but every disenfranchised uh, group that, that is out there that wanting to, you know, there's, we have deaf actors that are yeah. brilliant. And, and, and the equality issue is completely relevant. You, you know, having a deaf person play a deaf person is probably a good idea. But what were the things that bothered you about the way the deaf community was portrayed prior to this? What was the issues that they didn't get about what it meant to be deaf? Well, you know, having an, an actor, no matter how good they, uh, he or she is, uh, say, well, this is a great challenge, now I'm gonna do a role in sign language. So they learn American sign language, and then you watch the production of the sign language off their, of her, their body and their hands and their face, and it doesn't match a lifetime of living American sign language as part of your being. It just can't. An actor, as good as they are, can work on it for a year or two years if they want. It's not going to be natural because you're not using it every day. You know, deaf people are not silent or quiet all the time. That's, that's yeah. the misnomer. They're, they, they're very loud. Deaf people are some of the noisiest people <laughs> on the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and because I'm a code and I was brought up in that way, sometimes I'll be in the kitchen because I'm the cook in our family. And I'll be slamming doors and drawers, getting stuff up. And my wife says, hey, what are you mad about? I, what? I'm not mad. I'm just, oh, I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm noisy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It doesn't phase me. Mm. And, and Sound the Metal, when we're around the, the dinner table, yeah. I love that scene where everybody's talking, they, they play with the sound. And then when it comes on, people are banging. Well, that's how, right. you know, if you want the right. salt and pepper, you want the ketchup, that's how you do it, you know, so... And all of those actors, except for you and Riz, yes. are deaf. And they did a fantastic job. Little things you've pointed out about the way some people, uh, some deaf people have a challenge uh, with their balance going upstairs and the way you walk up those stairs. Okay, I want to come back to Sound of Metal, of course. But we got to ask you, you are Ozzy. Oh, 
<laughs> you are the front person of Hands of Doom, the only ASL. Now, there are many Black Sabbath cover bands, right? But you are, Ozzy, in the only one that uh, does sign language when you perform the brilliant works of Sabbath. Yes, and thank you. Uh, they are brilliant. They're prolific. They are brilliant. Well, mm. the best ever. Oh, my God. Well, listen, I started getting itchy a couple of years ago to get back into music. I used to do music in Chicago with uh, a band, Rocky. We did a lot of Bowie, mm -hmm. Aerosmith. It was a cover band. And then I come out here and I, I switched into acting. But I really have always been a rocker. I've kind of like, uh, so I was itching for it. I started auditioning for bands. So I auditioned for this uh, Black Sabbath tribute band. And um, wow, the in sign language, the lyrics are so great. This, you know, <laughs> nuclear war, the devil, yeah. God, yeah, yeah, all yeah. this stuff. So one day uh, we decided to tape one of the songs, Tomorrow's Dream, it went viral. Here we are in this group. Well, they asked me, why don't we do the whole set in ASL? Mm. I'm like, oh my God, well, all right. So we worked it up. And so now to make a long story short, we play at these heavy metal clubs in LA. Mm -hmm. And you're right, there are about 15 uh, tribute bands for Black Sabbath here. We play, so we're playing at Petey's Place in Tarzana. 40 deaf people show up, besides That's the regulars, yeah. 40 of them, from the age of 21 to 60, okay? They're all there, and so now every gig we do, 40 to 50 deaf people show up. It's hilarious because it's so loud. You see uh, the regular headbangers in there gesturing with deaf people, making it work, because it's so loud, so you can't hear each other anyway, but people, you know, uh, signing to each other, yeah, people doing the lyrics with me, yeah. rocking out. Well, that's <laughs> phenomenal. I I know uh, in the metal community there are deaf fans uh, more so than any other genre because uh, you can go to a metal concert and feel the vibrations in your body uh, even if if you have only marginal hearing. You know, uh, you're moved by that music. And and I've known metal fans who well, are deaf. Yes. Air guitar is sign yeah. language, man. Everybody understands air guitar. <laughs> But I'm just thinking, I, I'm, I'm tripping on the idea of Paul, um, you know, uh, ASLing, uh, you know, generals gathered in their yeah, masses, right. just like witches at black masses. I'm like, whoa. And, I mean, because it wasn't hard enough to sound like Ozzy to right. begin with. I mean, right. Ozzy has a voice like from Mars. Yeah, yeah, he's the best. He really is. <laughs> but I also, within the deaf community, you're right, there are different layers and levels of deafness, all the way to being stone deaf. Yep nothing to little versions of it so uh, or layers of it as i say yeah uh, and so th there's so many of them out there and plus i know a lot of musicians who have uh tinnitus to this day i have a little bit of it because of what i'm doing with this rock band and you really got to be careful and a lot of yeah. this movie for a lot of my buddies who play guitar or even drums uh it's their worst nightmare to lose your hearing mm -hmm, is sure. your worst nightmare paul what was your relationship with riz before filming 
He gives such a beautiful, nuanced performance, and he's so believable as a sort of metal, punk, avant-garde, noise rock drummer. Were you able to share your insights with him about losing your hearing as a musician and the struggle to become sober? No, I did not. I'll tell you why. Mm. When I got to the set, he had already been working on his character for a couple of weeks. I was there for my three-week shoot at this farm uh, that they had uh, for the Deaf Sober House. It was shot chronologically, the film, for the most part. It was shot chronologically. So when I got there and met Riz, what you see on screen is how our relationship was unfolding as two friends or actors on the set. I barely knew the guy in that first scene. Mm. He was getting to know me. I was getting to know him. There was nothing I needed to advise him on because he was already, had already been working with uh, Darius. They had, they had these little uh, uh, ear blockers that they'd put in his ear deep in the canal and then turn on some white noise, and he'd have to go and, and deal like that. Mm. So I didn't have to advise him that way. But the interesting thing that I did do is, because of my experience with addiction, addiction ministries, AA, I had brought with me a book, a book this thick of all these sayings from different spiritual uh, philosophies. And every once in a while, we'd be getting made up in the trailer. And right before we went to do our shoot, I'd give him a little card, you know, with mm. uh, one of these wise sayings, just one actor to another actor, something to think about, mm -hmm. some AA stuff, some jargon, a spiritual notion. So that's, that's how I was advising him, if, I, if you want to call it that. Yeah, well, because the recovery community has a language of its own, just like ASL is a language for deaf people. Exactly. So what I would do is give him some recovery jargon, and uh, it wasn't until the end of the shoot that he told me how much he appreciated that. But, but as, as we were getting to know each other, and the last scene we do together, uh, that was our... That was our goodbye, mm, yeah. uh, not only uh, as characters, but as men, you know, as actors. So it was just what a fantastic actor, a fantastic man. And uh, I just enjoyed him so much. When we return, we're going to talk more with actor and musician Paul Racy about our own hearing loss and what music fans can do to preserve their ears. Plus, we discuss the myth of needing drugs and alcohol to make good music. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. We're back. I'm Jim. He's Greg. And this week we're talking with Paul Racy, the Oscar-nominated actor, about his role in Sound of Metal. Let's get back to our conversation. Your parents, you know, with their issues with deafness, I, I think it's instructive for the way the movie was handled because... I have to say, the first five minutes of the movie, uh, Paul, I thought it was like a horror movie. It was like, I couldn't, I was, it was stunning to me to watch that and to see, and I was kind of like, what's, what's happening? What's happening to this guy? And he was, and you could see the look on his face was, you know, the sound is not there anymore, and it's going in and out. And there's different ways of handling this. You lose something that's so precious, and then what do you do next? How do you handle this issue? And there's a great line in the movie, you know, deafness is not something you fix or something along those lines, right? Uh, which I really resonated. But your parents had different experiences with it, right, in the way they were able to process it. Yes. Yeah, my dad, as I said, at six months of age, he 
get spinal meningitis, lost his hearing, so he never remembered it. My mom at five, now look at it, next time you see a five-year-old child, mm. think about that. You're gonna take that away from them. They're, they're already speaking, enjoying music, enjoying life, and then it's a whole nother way. So when the cochlear implants first came out in Chicago, many years ago, when my parents were still alive, we went to a uh, presentation where they had this uh, guy who had these implants done. And they were trying to sell it to the deaf community. So I'm in the audience with my dad and my mom. We're watching this presentation. And on stage, they're having all these technical difficulties, not working this and that. Oh, it was just it was a nightmare. And we're watching this thing. And then finally it worked for a couple of seconds. And I look at my dad and I said, Dad, you want that? You want one of those things? He goes, <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. He goes I'm happy the way I am. Don't, don't touch me. And my mom just sat there and looked over and she just, was watching it and didn't want to say anything, didn't want to comment, no comment, you know. Yeah. So I could tell that there was something about it that was intriguing to her, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my dad was like, nah. And so then you cut to today, in today's world. Uh, and I've said this before, deaf people are, have, that I know out here in L.A. are refreshingly, they'll just say, no, don't touch me. Uh, I'm perfect, whole, complete as I am. If you want to speak to me, you're the one who's deficit. You don't know American Sign Language. So right. they just turn it back over to you. Mm. But not to say that the cochlear implant is bad and that the deaf community shuns it. They don't. Uh, everything shifts. Isn't it interesting? So even the deaf community shifts. Awareness expands, shifts. And so it's more accepted now. Before, uh, it was don't touch me. Don't put me under that knife. And now it's more of an acceptable thing and yet, with other people, it's not. So, you know, the deaf community is not a monolith. Yeah. Uh, everybody's got their own opinion. Everybody's got something to say about something. So uh, you just have to do what's, what's, what's... It's a personal journey, isn't it? That's what it is. You just can't tell people what to do, but let them uh, make their own decision. That's, that's why it's so painful uh, when Joe has to tell Ruben, it's not so much the cochlear implant that he put in, he broke the rules of the house. He broke the mm-hmm. rules. Mm-hmm. And it's very painful to send him away like that, you know. The idea of losing your hearing, and you, you being a rocker, and, and you know, tinnitus, tinnitus being an issue with a lot of people in this All community. Of us. I've lost, I've lost hearing because I've been at 2,000-plus rock shows, right? And I loved the volume, and I loved to get hit in the chest with that sound, and I wanted the full volume, and I refused to wear earplugs because I said it diminishes the experience. And then I think, what a dummy you were for, for yeah. years, you know, doing that. Yeah. Um, what is your advice to somebody who loves to go to shows and rock and wants that volume? And what's the, what's the uh, you know, and it, your hearing is the mo- one of the most valuable things we've been given as human beings. What would you tell some 19-year-old kid who says, I just want to stand in front of that speaker and get my head blown off, you know, by my favorite uh, band? So wrong. Uh, listen. I can only say my own experience. When I got back from Nam and got back into rock and roll right away, uh, I suffered from uh, tinnitus a lot. And so that was the reason I really started doing a lot of weird-ass drugs uh, to, to, to get me down, some to get me up. Uh, I couldn't sleep. And so that was not worth it. The journey that set me on after that was not worth it. And so they've got these things, these, these little earplugs you can get. 
I don't want to. I don't know if I should give the company a plug, but it's their eargasms yeah, and they're we've perfect. About them. Yeah, dude, dude, th- that's all you got to do. You can still hear the <laughs> yeah. music. Yeah, you can still hear. You can feel it. That's good. But please, you know, I, I remember coming back and uh, my my brother and sister take you to my first concerts. Robin Trower, uh, Peter <laughs> Frampton, and. The speakers, you got your head in the speaker. I was doing yeah, it. You yeah. know I mean? It's not <laughs> worth it. It really isn't. No, and the hip-hop kids do, and the electronic dance music kids do. I mean, it, yeah, it's not just Right, specific. and that's even worse. That is not worth it because when you, if you plan on living a couple more years, which, you know, hopefully, it's, it's, going, to be, it's going to be trouble. And uh, I've recently had my ears uh, tested, and I've lost some hearing in my right side. Mm-hmm. Um, and I... It changes your behavior. It changes everything about you. Please protect your ears. That's all I'm begging you. Please protect your ears if you really want to uh, save yourself a lot of heartache. Well, Paul, you know, you're as eloquent talking about uh, the process of recovery as you are about the deaf community. And I was just wondering, you know, it's rare that we've had somebody who who has been uh, a counselor, you know, on the show. Uh, yet, you know, it's it's endemic, it's epidemic in the uh, substance abuse and and music, right? I mean, here, you know, you play Ozzy on stage. You are Ozzy, <laughs> and wow, did that guy have some troubles? You know, it oh. took him a long time to find some peace um, and healthiness. Uh, by all means, he should be dead, right? Um, you know, what are your observations about that? Yeah, uh, when, I was, when, I, when I got back from Vietnam and got into this band that I was doing with my brother, he was the bass player, uh, there was this thing, I was very angry at the time. All I remember is uh, in the middle of a song, I'd be surrounded by this deafening music. All I could hear was the music, all I could feel was the music. And I remember telling somebody at the time, if I can't do this for the rest of my life, because I, I wanted to be Mick Jagger, if I can't do this, I don't want to live. That, and I remember saying that. Mm. If I can't do this, I don't want to live. And then it got to the point where I could see where I wasn't going to live because of the mm. lifestyle that I had chosen. So I stopped and I became an actor. Uh, I stopped music. I was deathly afraid of it. And then years later, when I, that urge was in me, I'd already worked it out that you don't you don't really have to be high to play music, because yeah. I was always high playing music. That's I thought it was uh, part and parcel of the of the act of the show. I think that's where Oz used it. it was part and parcel of what he was doing. The people around him and listen, people would come up to me in the middle of a club and hand me a vial of cocaine. Here mm. you go, buddy. Love you. And what am I going to do? You know, I, I just I would do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, come back on stage and my throat was all tightened up. <clears throat> couldn't sing anymore because I was an idiot. Um, so I think I just had to grow up. I had to find uh, meditation. I had to find that path to spirituality. If I had not found that spiritual path and and my own, my own meditative practice, because I have my own spiritual practice, uh, and that is going into the stillness. Mm-hmm. If I didn't have that, I, I don't think I'd be rocking today. So that's the difference between young Paul at the age of 20, 21, 25 coming back uh, and now at the age of 70. I, would, I wouldn't be able to, I'm 72. You, you know, do you think I could actually in the middle of a set do a shot of Jack Daniels and smoke a joint? It's, it, it's yeah. just not going to work. I Listen to an old man here, man. Take my advice. <laughs> if you want to rock, you want to keep on rocking, I don't, that's one thing you got to give up. I'd mm. advise giving that up a little bit earlier. You got to get yourself right, man. You got to, uh, God, here I'm getting preachy, but you know.
No, no, we asked you. It's fair. I mean, yeah. you know, it, it breaks our heart to see so many uh, talented musicians that are trapped in this myth of I have to destroy myself to become mm. an artist. Exactly, a rock and roll martyr. You know, that, yeah. that, that is a myth. If you enjoy what you're doing, God, I love it now more than ever. I love it so much. Well, the music's a drug. It is. That's, that's drug enough. A healthy it's, one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Boy, when it's on and when it's cooking and people are there, uh, which is what I miss the most because of this COVID thing, but uh, it, it, we're coming back. Hopefully we're coming back soon. But that that's the drug. Boy, who knew? Who knew you could get high on life? What is that about? <laughs> We have been talking to Paul Racy, born and raised in Chicago, fantastic actor, Sound of Metal. Paul, maybe we could just hang with you on Sound Opinions forever. Thanks for doing this. I could talk to you guys forever. You guys are cool. I love Chicago. God. Well, you know, every accolade, not that awards matter for any artist. Ha! They shouldn't. But every no. accolade that comes your way, you certainly deserve yeah. it. I mean, that movie's incredible. Yeah, it was great. I Good. appreciate you guys, man. Thank, Thank you, Paul. You. That wraps up our conversation with Paul Racy, and as always, you can share your thoughts with us in our Sound Opinions discussion group on Facebook, on our Patreon page, or you can leave a voice message at our website, soundopinions.org. And while you're visiting the website, you can also check out the transcript of our conversation with Paul. Up next, it's the story of country singer-songwriter Guy Clark on Sound Opinions. We're back. I'm Greg, he's Jim, and we're moving now to another film, the Guy Clark documentary, Without Getting Killed or Caught. Pack up all your dishes Make note of all good wishes And say goodbye to the landlord for me But some bitches always bored me Throw out them L.A. papers and moldy bags of vanilla wafers Adios to all this concrete Gonna get me some dirt road back street I love that title, Greg, and it comes from the song we just heard, L.A. Freeway, one of Guy Clark's most beloved tunes. Uh, but, you know, I gotta say that while Guy Clark may be the main focus of this film, the real star is his wife, Susanna Clark, whose journal entries are read by Sissy Spacek and serve as narration for the movie. You know, we see Guy and Susanna updating traditional music, inventing alternative country, and helping to really, really solidify that Americana genre. But their marriage was really modern. They are living with Towns Van Zant, the songwriter. Everybody is infatuated with everybody else. Susanna called Towns her soulmate. Guy, of course, is her beloved husband. The film is about all three of them. Guy, Susanna, and Towns pursuing a creative life while nipping at the edges of commercial success. We are here with Tamara Saviano, the director, producer, and writer of the new Guy Clark documentary, Without Getting Killed or Caught. Welcome, Tamara. Hi, guys. I'm really glad to be here with you. That's an extraordinary film, uh, Tamara. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. And, and I went into it as not 
much of a Guy Clark fan. Not quite my genre. It made me a fan. 26 songs incorporated in the film. But I have to say right off the bat, the star of this movie is Susanna Clark, the woman who was an incredible muse loved by both of the subjects, Guy Clark and Towns Van Zandt. I gather that it was uh, a real find for you because you had written a book about Clark and it was exhaustive and, and, a, and a great biography. But Susanna emerging as the voice in the film, voiced by Sissy Spacek, was a gift to the filmmaker, no? Absolutely. Yeah. It, Sissy came into the studio and she just transformed into Susanna before our very eyes. Mm. Guy finally landed a big publishing deal with RCA in Nashville. When I wrote my book, Guy had given me Susanna's diaries, written and audio diaries, uh, just a couple days after Susanna died in 2012. And I delved into the written diaries for my book, but the audio diaries, there were so many of them, and they were intimidating, so I really didn't go there for my book. I didn't feel like I needed it. But then when Paul and I started working on the film... You know, we were looking for audio and video and, and everything. And so we spent the entire summer of 2017 after supper listening to those diaries and uh, digitizing them at the same time. And that's when we just would look at each other and go, wow, I can't even believe that we have struck this gold. Hey, me now. Now listen to me now. I want to tell you something. Don't slit your throat or, or break your fingers when you hear me sing and play because there's room for all of us in this world. I know. And just listen closely and you might learn something, okay? As the movie sucks you into its beautiful rhythm, you know, you, you can't even tell what is Sissy Spacek reading uh, Susanna Clark's diaries and then the audio uh, uh, drops from Susanna Clark and it becomes the story of these, you know, A, these musicians, you know, herself one of them, great songwriter, and Guy Clark and Towns Van Zandt, and B, of a period in time when these crazy Texans, hard drinking, smoking, hard living, uh, you know, came together in this uh, exceedingly fertile uh, creative community that yielded essentially the Americana genre. Outlaw songwriters gravitated to Tennessee to be a part of that scene. Chris Christopherson, Mickey Newberry, and Willie Nelson were just killing it with their poetic songs. And that period of time in the early 70s in Nashville, you know, Chris Christopherson had come here, and then Steve Earle and Rodney Crowell came because of Christopherson, and so did Guy, and then they all found each other. So it really was this. I think the start of what we now call Americana, you know, with the Nashville and Austin folk Americana songwriting, you know, roots, Mm -hmm. American roots based uh, stuff. And that continues today. I think there's still a lot of salons, primarily in East Nashville, with the songwriters. But yeah, that period of time in the 70s is particularly rich. And I was a teenager in the 70s, so I think that time kind of speaks with me. It's when I was having my own musical awakening, and Guy was part of that. I was 14 when I discovered him. I was a kid growing up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and became enthralled with this Texan. Mm. Yeah, you you mentioned Texas. Uh, You know, Guy Clark straddled those two worlds, the Texas uh, singer-songwriter scene of the 60s and then going to Nashville in the 70s and sort of anchoring that uh, outlaw fringe there 
the salon that uh, uh, you know, as, as Susanna Clark uh, described it uh, in their in their home, right? That where all these songwriters would gather uh, the misfits of the the, the Nashville scene. Um, what was that like? That that whole environment. I mean, you're as close to it as anyone in terms of just studying it and being influenced by it and making a film about it and writing about it. What was that room like? Well, both Chris Christofferson and Guy Clark both told me separately that it was like Paris in the 20s. Mm -hmm. Um, That's how they described it. And it feels that way. It was these kind of fringe writers and artists that gathered together and you know, they did, like, Guy had a publishing deal, Steve Earle got a publishing deal, Rodney got a publishing deal, but their songs weren't being cut by the mainstream hit artist of the day. They were definitely on the fringe, and for them it was all about the song, writing a song that would impress each other. Um, They weren't, I mean, they would have loved more commercial success, don't get me wrong, they would have welcomed that but really what they wanted was to impress each other and to have Mm. the greatest songs and in guy's case it had to work as a poem first before it was a song that's a really unique perspective where did that come from well i think he just always thought of himself as a poet when he was growing up in rockport texas he used to read poetry aloud. You know, his high school, they would have poetry invitationals where they would go from school to school and do poetry readings. And that was something that always struck Guy. His family did that around the kitchen table every night. So he was really into poetry and poets. And when he wanted to turn them into songs, that started when he met Towns in Houston and around 1964 when he heard towns writing these poetic songs that's when guy got the idea that he could be a songwriter and he latched onto that and he never let go throughout his entire life he didn't want to write books he didn't want to write long form Uh, sean camp one of his co-writers approached guy once about taking their suite of songs about a character sis draper to try to do a theater show and guy didn't want anything to do with that because it would take away from his songwriting time Mm-hmm. You know, some of us who are creators, who are writers, like to explore different mediums, but not Guy. He only wanted to write songs. That's interesting. You know, uh, Jim mentioned Susanna Clark as being the star of the film in, in a lot of ways. I agree with that. Despite the fact that Guy and Towns probably are better known, Susanna was the secret weapon. But also, not so secret, because she had hits, obviously, just isn't She outsold name. them. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, Steve Earle said something along the lines of, like, we were all trying to impress her, because we knew that Guy was trying to impress her. Like, right. this song's got to be good enough that Susanna's going to like it. So in some right. ways, she was kind of the one that they were all trying to, like, okay, I hope if Susanna likes it, I've written a good song. How did she acquire that stature, I guess is what I'm asking. That's a great question, and I don't know that I ever am able to answer that question, but she was the muse for Guy and Towns and Steve and Rodney and a lot of the other songwriters of that era. Uh, Willie Nelson came under her spell. So what that was that she had, I don't know, but it was something. You know, I didn't meet Susanna until um, 2000, and by that time it was a couple years after Towns died, and she was already going downhill fast but Mm -hmm. even then she did have this presence about her 
you know, when you walked into the house and Susanna was there, you could just kind of feel her energy. And she's the one that pulled everybody together in those salons. Mm -hmm. Um, She was the one that wanted to have all artists around her. And as Steve Earle says in the film, you know, they learned how to write songs from Guy and Towns, but they learned how to carry themselves as artists from Susanna. That is a great quote. Uh, For people who haven't seen the film yet, Susanna was married to Guy. Towns was living with them for a time. Uh, Susanna called Towns a soulmate. Uh, Rodney Crowell was also infatuated and enchanted by Susanna. All of these men were inspired by her as songwriters. It, it's, it's the hippie era, and these are hard-drinking country Americana songwriters in Texas. <laughs> it's a weird combination of aesthetics. Yeah, and I think they really are of their time, right? You know, they were all coming of age in the mid-60s. You know, Guy moved to San Francisco right after the Summer of Love, and and yeah, they did have that that kind of aesthetic. I, I think it all adds to the romance of the songwriting and the artists' salons and, you know, their lifestyle. And when we were working on the film, we were really cognizant of that. Paul and I picked out like three or four images and we were like, okay, these are the aesthetic of the film. We need to keep that in mind. One of the pictures is this great Polaroid of Guy and Susanna and Jerry Jeff Walker and his wife Susan and then Guy and Susanna by their Volkswagen bus you know Mm -hmm. and yeah so I don't know as I said earlier that it kind of is interesting to me too I was born a little bit too late for that I was born in 61 so I was just a kid during those days but uh, I'm attracted to that time. <laughs> we missed we missed the good times. <laughs> All right, let's talk about Guy as a songwriter. Okay. Um, you, you've got to tell the story of L.A. Freeway. The film takes its title uh, from a line in that song, Without yes. Getting Killed or Caught. I can just get off of this L.A. Freeway without getting killed or caught. Yes. So Guy and Susanna lived in L.A. They had gone there from Houston. Guy was trying to get a publishing deal and meanwhile he was playing in a string band and one night on the way home from a gig Susanna was driving and Guy was passed out in the back seat and he woke up and looked around and they were on the LA freeway and he just said I have to get off of this LA freeway without getting killed or caught and (laughs) wrote it down on a burger sack with Susanna's eyebrow pencil and then carried it around in his wallet for several years until they moved to Nashville and then that's when he fleshed out the song. Oh Susanna, don't you cry, babe. Love's a gift that surely hand me. We got something to be leaving. Don't you think it's time we're leaving? And the lesson repeated by all the songwriters in the salon is when the line comes to you, no matter what you are doing, write it down. <laughs> write it down. Right. Yeah. And then Guy, when he would perform, he would tell this great story about living in L.A. in this uh, little guest house. Um, and there was a big grapefruit tree and um, how the landlord used to work in the garage making his own bullets. And one day Guy came outside and he was chopping down the grapefruit tree. And Guy asked him what he was doing. And he said the grapefruit tree was getting so big that the roots were trying, were starting to crack his concrete patio, you know. And so, Mm. and then 
guy would go into singing L.A. Freeway about, you know, getting out of L.A. and finding some dirt road back street. You know, the songwriting vein, old number one was uh, a record that a lot of people thought was a landmark uh, record for that era. Uh, Desperado's Waiting for a Train. Guy wrote that about, I guess, uh, his grandmother's boyfriend, right? Yes, yes. Well, he's a drifter and a driller boy well. That song in particular uh, is kind of identified as the Guy Clark song or sort of the, you know, the start of the greatness. And, and Towns, I guess his comment was, it, I think it, I believe it's in the movie, right, Tamara? Um, gone commercial, huh? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that song, that has a special place in the pantheon for, for Guy. It does. What was the genesis of that? Well, so yeah, Guy's grandmother... His paternal grandmother owned a little hotel in Monahans, Texas, which is out in the middle of nowhere in West Texas. And Jack Prigg was one of the residents at this hotel. He was a wildcatter in the oil business and was Guy's grandmother's boyfriend. And when Guy's dad was off during World War II, Jack Prigg was who took Guy everywhere and just doted on him. And as Guy grew up, you know, he taught him to drive and gave him money for girls and just, you know, was a real important figure in Guy's life. And the very first time I went to Guy's house, he pulled out all these pictures of Jack Prigg to show me the pictures. So I think Desperados is, you know, one of Guy's most personal songs. And then the Highwaymen cut it. Like Desperados. You know, Willie Nelson cut it, so it it became well-known in those circles. It's a great song. What was your sense of Guy's feeling about the... I mean, the songs being covered by these great artists must have been uh, incredibly validating, but at the same time, did he think, what's wrong with my version? Why, Why wasn't my version a hit? Yeah, I think he struggled with that. You know, during the early years, and we do discussed this in the movie when he had the big record deals with RCA and Warner Brothers. Um, They tried to turn him into a country star, but it was kind of like, you know, square peg meet round hole. It just wasn't going to work. Guy was a folk singer for one thing, and he didn't like all the um, slick production. You know, he just wanted to stand there with his guitar and sing. And so it, it, you know, it just didn't suit him is really what it boils down to. But he was happy when other people recorded his songs. For one, Mm. that's how he finally made money. And then that gave him the freedom to be able to go out and do his own thing. I even tried to uh, egg him on a little bit when Kenny Chesney recorded one of his songs. I tried to get Guy to say something about Kenny's recording, and he wouldn't take the bait. He was just thrilled. (laughs) I 
was going to say, when you say slick production, we're talking about things like he had a drummer on it. Yeah, drummer. Oh, yeah. drummer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're I not talking not like about... I did not like drums. <laughs> no, I mean, an orchestra. You, you know, when you think slick production, you're thinking, arc, you know, they had 70 people in the studio. No, he was talking about a drummer. He was talking about the drums, yeah. So he must have hated every version of his songs that everybody else did because they all, by those standards, had slick production, right? I mean... right. Yeah, so. and when he he went back to record, you know, those earlier records, he went back to record them when he did his first live record, Keepers, in 1996, he recorded. And the reason he wanted to do that record was to re-record all those songs without drums. Well, I mean, one of the heroes of this country. So why is he all dressed up like them old men? Drinking beer, playing moon, 42. Like a desperado waiting for a train. Like a desperado waiting for a train. Well, they all had their peculiarities and idiosyncrasies. Yes. You know, I mean, I mean, uh, such a dedicated group of uh, of people, you know, to, to, to resent being called a craftsman when you won't even let somebody put drums on your <laughs> acoustic reading of this song. Um, and yet, at the same time, at the center of your story, Susanna Clark, just, just, she's a painter. She loves to paint. And then she'd pen this song, and it would become a hit and outsell both Towns Van Zandt and Guy Clark for many years. Why do you think she didn't? follow uh, that path as becoming, uh, you know, uh, primarily a a singer-songwriter herself? Well, Susanna didn't like to be the center of attention in the larger world. I think she did in her group, but she didn't want to be famous, for one thing. And I think, you know, as Steve says, she would just write these simple country songs. She couldn't really play guitar. She knew a few chords. Um. So I think she was doing it more to prove a point that she could write songs. And then because hers were, you know, she wasn't trying to write, as Steve says, when he and Guy um, heard The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, they went to bed for a week because they couldn't believe that song became a hit and they didn't write it. Um <laughs> Susanna was, you know, she wanted to write simple love songs, you know, and they worked, you know, they worked for the radio format. So if tonight you'll be my total stranger, I'll be your sentimental And therefore she was more successful at it, and she's the one that made really good money writing songs. Yeah, it's a Guy Clark documentary, but it's really the three of them, uh, yes. Towns and Susanna. And the relationship with, that Towns had with both of them is central to the movie. And Towns, of course, dies young. Yes. I mean, relatively speaking, 1997, he dies. And he could have been in his prime at that point. He was starting to become celebrated by the people who were influenced by him. And yet Towns was in no shape to enjoy it or capitalize on it. Well, right. the film suggests drinking himself to death. Yeah. Everything changed with that, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Tamara was just one of those moments that you don't turn back from. Yeah, I think Susanna had a lot of grief in her life. You know, she never got over her sister Bunny's suicide. And when Towns died, 
I think that was enough for her. That was just it. And as Rodney said, she decided to kill herself slowly. And she just gave up and she went to bed and she stayed there for 15 years. Mm. You know, I think that our story is a story of friendship and how that friendship manifests itself creatively. And also it's a story of grief. And yeah, it's Susanna's ending was sad, you know, and I have this fantasy that, you know, she worked through her grief and went on to be a much more celebrated artist. I wish it would have been that way, but it wasn't. Well, Susanna's ending is sad. Towns is sad. Guy seemed very lonely the last years of his life with his left and right hands gone. It's kind of a sad film. Uh, yeah. Very, very sad film. And yeah. yet all this creativity came out of it. What do you think of the survivors who speak so eloquently in, in your film? You know, Steve Earle has never been shy talking about his own uh, relationship problems, his struggles with sobriety. Rodney Crowell is very honest in the movie. You know, that they managed to find the way to continue and to create when right. these three huge influences in their lives uh, didn't. Right. Well, yeah, I think, you know, Rodney and Steve both got clean, you know, which is a big deal. Um, I think that being an addict and going into treatment and exploring your internal self probably helps a lot with that. Guy and Susanna certainly never really explored getting clean. Well, they might have briefly, but it certainly didn't take... Um, and I don't know about Towns. It doesn't seem like he did. But, you know, Towns also, you know, I'm not a doctor, but I think Towns had mental illness and he was self-medicating. And there's probably a lot more going on there that meets the eye. So I don't know. You know, Rodney and Steve were there for most of it. And interviewing them for the film was so important to us because they were there. They were a there are a couple of the rare survivors that were there mm. at the time and, and, and are witnesses to what happened. We have been talking to Tamara Saviano, who made this fantastic film without getting killed or caught about Guy Clark with her husband. Uh, congratulations, and thanks for being on Sound Opinions. Oh, hey, thank you. I love your show. And um, wave to Lake Michigan for me, will you? <laughs> yeah. I miss it. For information on how to see this film, visit withoutgettingkilledorcaught.com. To share your thoughts on Guy Clark, Towns Van Zandt, or Susanna, visit soundopinions.org and leave a voice message. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we are going to share our favorite songs with the best backing vocals. For more Sound Opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. And speaking of sponsors, every week our show reaches hundreds of thousands of curious listeners from around the globe via podcast and on 150 public radio stations nationwide. If you'd like to learn more on how your business or organization can also reach this engaged and educated audience, you can email sponsor at soundopinions.org. That's sponsor at soundopinions.org. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, and our intern, Sol Delgadillo.